Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 23, verses 1 to 3, if you'd, 1 to 13, sorry. <clears throat> if you'd like to follow along, it is on page 804 in the Pew Bibles. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And you do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. morning. So in 2002, I went to a church called Willow Creek Church, Community Church, and we went with a group of pastors from, it was my first church I've been to, and I've heard of Willow Creek, but I really didn't know who they were. So I went without really knowing much about the church, but when I got there, I just, I realized how massive that church was. I mean, just to even park when you go and park there, you need a shuttle to take you from the parking lot into the church. Like, that's how massive this church was. And once I got into the building, I was blown away by the facilities. It was, they had a cafeteria, you know, they had this huge worship space. It, was, it wasn't just a church building. It was more of these, like, multifunctional, do-it-all complex than a church building. And while I was there, I heard Bill Heibel speak, and he was charismatic, shared a lot of good insights, and really got us excited about the church. I still remember this one talk he gave, which really stuck to me, was he talked about how not every church needs to be a big church. It's easy to say when you're the big church, though, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, anyways, but he's like, not every church needs to be a big church, and you may not be called to build a big church, and he referenced Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who was faithful to God, 
But if you looked at his ministry, people would say that he was not successful because no one ever listened to him. He said all these things about how, how uh, the people were supposed to turn to God, but yet no one listened. Yet Jeremiah was an obedient and faithful servant. So when I heard that Bill Hybels was accused of sexual misconduct and an abuse of power, my first thought was, again? Another one? Can we just have a Christian leader in a mega church who doesn't fail? It got to the point where it feels as though even now it's just a matter of time before another celebrity Christian will fall from grace. Like Icarus who got too close to the sun, these celebrity Christians who we, who we read, follow, and like, and listen to their podcasts, fall crumbling to the ground as their waxy facades of charisma and eloquence melt away. We've been in this sermon series called God is Good, where we are exploring how we are called to build a church culture of goodness because God is a good God and wants us to be good. We've been going through the book called The Church Called Tov, Tov in Hebrew meaning good, where the authors McKnight and Beringer examine the kind of characteristics that foster a culture of goodness. If you look at the slide, we've looked through a few of these circles of Tov. We, went, we talked about nurture, nurturing empathy, nurturing grace, putting people first, telling the truth, nurturing justice, and today we're looking at nurturing service and resisting celebrity culture. We want to resist celebrity culture and nurture service. One thing I want to voice for us and to acknowledge is that we live in a celebrity culture, and we ourselves perpetuate this culture by our liking, following, and consuming of celebrities. This isn't just an out there problem in the secular world, but rather it is deeply part of the Christian world as well. Whether it's worship bands, charismatic leaders, uh, or, or orators like Bill Hybels or Bruxy Cavey, we prop up Christian celebrities and consume what they produce until they fail us. Yet since they are just commodities to us, we can just throw out these celebrities and replace them with other celebrities that we could consume and like and follow. This doesn't mean that these leaders do not have a responsibility for what they've done, but we are complicit and contribute to this culture of celebrity worship. This isn't anything new. In our passage today, we see Jesus speaking against these celebrity pastors and their desire for recognition and fame. Verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were well-respected individuals and the members of their society. Enough that when they were called rabbi, which is an honorable way of saying, addressing someone as teacher or, in our case, professor, doctor, that kind of stuff, uh, that their status was so uh, high that, that the, their disciples had to obey their rabbis without any question. They also couldn't walk in front or even beside their rabbis and had to walk behind and couldn't even greet the rabbi first. The rabbis had to acknowledge the disciples before they could speak back. 
Jesus says that these teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What is Moses' seat? It was a stone seat in the synagogue, much like the church, where the teacher who had the authority would teach them from. So, so you could imagine whether it's this, this isn't a pulpit, but this, this I guess, is kind of like our pulpit, right? It's the music stand, right? You've seen those pulpits where pastors stand and give their uh, sermons, right? Basically, that was Moses' seat. Uh, another thing with Moses' seat was that that was... Uh, for someone to sit on Moses' seat was to succeed whoever was in authority to succeed that person in authority. So, for instance, Greg and I would have been sitting on Gene's seat, like we've taken over or succeeded Gene after he retired kind of thing, right? So Jesus says to these teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so make sure to do everything they tell you to do. Then he turns around and says this, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What Jesus is doing here is he's being sarcastic. He's saying, these teachers and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so you must be careful. Do whatever they tell you to do. You know, uh, whatever they tell you. But he, in fact, is saying that just because someone stands up in front of the pulpit, like myself, or have the title of rabbi, can speak the truth. So, yeah, you, you should listen to what they may say, but don't be or do what they do. Yeah, they may say the right things, but the way they live and behave is completely different. Jesus goes on to say what these teachers and the Pharisees were like. Verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Everything they do is done for people to see. Carl Lentz was a pastor of a church called Hillsongs, New York where he led a growing church with members from the celebrity community. You may have heard of this guy, Carl Lentz. He took regular selfies with people like Justin Bieber and the Kardashians and other celebrities who would come and worship at his church. Carl Lentz himself became a celebrity with about 600,000 Instagram followers. In 2020, Lentz was fired from his church due to breaches of trust for having an ongoing affair and other allegations of abuse of power. Everything they do is done for people to see. I mean, this is the culture that we live in now, isn't it? Like, social media has made it so easy for us to share our lives with others. What we ate for breakfast, the hike I went on last week, the celebration of a wedding. And I don't, I don't say that to say none of these things are wrong in itself, because we want to share our lives with our loved ones, especially if people are far away. It's a great way to stay connected. However, this constant need to share or to like others who share has created the context in which it is so easy for us to become self-absorbed. And now it really does feel like everything we do is done for people to see. The Pharisees and the religious leaders did the same thing. They made their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Does anyone know what a phylactery is? Here's a picture of 
a phylactery. It's a box that was worn on the head that contains verses from the Bible. Then uh, this was worn by, and this is still worn by, adult Jews for morning prayers. So Jesus is saying that they make their phylacteries wide. So imagine, you know, here's a regular size phylactery. But the Pharisees put on massive, can you just imagine this huge, massive box of Bible verses on their head walking around? Right? That, that's what they were doing. They were being ridiculous, but yet they were wearing these massive, wide phylacteries, right? Just to say, you know, you're holy, but look at my phylactery. Like, <laughs> like, I'm holy, right? Okay, so next one, tassels. Here's a tassel. Tassels in Hebrew, pronounced zit, zit, are woven thread to remind people about the commandments that God gave the Israelites. These can also be worn as part of a prayer shawl. And by the time Jesus, by the time of Jesus, these two, two items of religious fashion became a way of showing off how religious someone was. So the bigger the phylactery or the longer the tassel showed others how holy they were. You know, if, if you want to see something funny, like you want to go and sit and hear a bunch of pastors talking about their church. Like, if you go... They're talking about their phylacteries and their tassels, right? Like how big our church is, how amazing our ministries are going. As if they need, you know, they're so insecure, really. It's, it's out of our insecurity, right? That we want to make it sound like, yeah, my phylactery is wider than yours, you know? So let me read you a more modern reading of this passage, which I, we, is by uh, Eugene Peterson. He says, the religion... The religious scholars and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. So you won't go wrong in following their teachings on Moses. But be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polished veneer. Their lives are perpetual fashion shows, embroidered prayer shawls one day, and flowery prayers the next. They love to sit at the head table at church dinners, basking in the most prominent positions, preening in the radiance of public flattery, receiving honorary degrees, and getting called doctor and reverend. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a place for us to respect and honor people of, of who, who can teach us, right? But at the same time, be careful of their ways, we at Spring Garden Church, we want to resist this celebrity culture and nurture service because this is exactly what Jesus says here in this passage. Verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant, for, th for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The greatest among you will be your servant. So what is a servant? A servant is a slave. Someone who doesn't have power, who doesn't have status, someone who does whatever the master tells them to do. When Jesus calls his disciples to be a servant, it was a call for something very radical and appalling, countercultural. I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent because when we hear the word servant these days, it doesn't hold that same kind of weight. I thought possibly something like, um, I don't know, a minimum wage worker or the under-the-table worker or a migrant worker. 
In essence, the greatest among you, according to Jesus, is someone who will be willing to do or be someone that no one really wants to be. So fill in that blank for yourself. What kind of job or station in life that you yourself don't want to be? Jesus says the greatest among you will be that thing that you don't want to be. You might be thinking that this was just some Pharisee problem, you know, the Pharisee, these arrogant Pharisees who are so bad in the Bible. But this isn't true. It's a problem with the Pharisees, but also of the lowly fishermen and the tax collectors as well. A few chapters ago in Matthew 20, we read the story about the mother of James and John. This mother wanted her sons to sit at the right and left hand of, Je- left seat of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. So when the disciples hear of this story, or hear of this kind of maneuvering that the mother of James and John are doing, they get upset. But they're not getting upset because these two are going to be in power. They're getting upset because, hey, what about us? I mean, we've been with Jesus from the beginning just as much as you have. I mean, if anything, Andrew should have been the one that's upset, right? Andrew was the very first one to be called by Jesus. So if I was Andrew, I'd be like, oh, wait a minute. I was the first one called. Come on, you guys are, you know, third, fourth. I was first. So if anything, I should sit at the right hand of Jesus. Or maybe Peter would say, hey, you know, Jesus said I, I would be the rock on which the church will be built. So I should be sitting on the right. Or maybe it would have been John, who was the beloved disciple of Jesus, who says, Jesus loves me the most, so I should sit on the right hand of Jesus. But listen to what Jesus says to them. He calls them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, Gentiles just meaning non-Jews, lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says to his disciples that you already know that this is how the world runs. That the non-Jews, the Gentiles lorded over other people. And how the people in power use their power over other people. Yet his disciples are to be different. If they want to be great, they must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Did you notice that Jesus says that they must be your servant and your slave? Meaning, it's not about how I act as a servant. So Jesus doesn't say, you must be like a servant, you must be like a slave. He says, you must be like your servant. Right? So it's not about how you view yourself as a servant, but rather it's more about how the other person will view you, view your acts of service as a servant. It isn't about serving that is self-serving, but rather being a servant that serves others. I think this is where being a volunteer is different than being a servant. When I volunteer, it's on my own terms. I can volunteer for what I want, when I want, and for how long I want. It's really about me. Whereas service is not something we do because we feel generous or have some free time. We serve because it's a calling. We serve because Jesus served us first. 
We're called to serve others and be their slaves because this is what Jesus did. He came not to be served, but to serve. This is why we as a church are called to resist celebrity culture and nurture service. And listen to what Paul says about service in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, first the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a long sentence. Jesus gave the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers teachers for what purpose? To be venerated, to be lifted up, to be followed on Facebook, or Facebook, that's old now, Instagram, or, or uh, on their podcast? No, rather, they were, they, were give, they were given this task to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. As pastors, we're not called to provide you with programs and events so that you can come and consume them. We're not here to entertain you with these dazzling sermons and funny jokes, which obviously, you know, we often fail at, right? We are here to equip you for works of service. We are here to empower you so that you can serve God and others. And this is part of what we want to do at Spring Garden Church. As leaders, we want to equip you for the works of service. This word, service, in Greek, by the way, can also be translated as ministry. So we are to equip you to do ministry, which is the calling of all Christians. We're all called to minister to God, to one another, and to the world. This doesn't mean all of you are to be pastors or, or teachers or leaders or missionaries, missionaries, but rather as disciples of Christ, all of us, all of our life is an act of service or ministry to God. This means that what we do on Sundays, this, I'm sorry, this means that what we do on Sundays to that of what we do on a Monday are all part of ministry. It is our job to equip you to serve within the church and without. And I think one of the biggest challenges for us is that we have been trained and ingrained to be consumers. We consume and consume, never being satisfied, satisfied, always wanting more. This isn't just with our shopping habits, buffets, music, news, or podcasts. We can binge all we want to our heart's content. We also do this with church. We pick churches based on how good their program is, what, can the, what the church uh, offer us in terms of music, how a church can feed my soul. What can, th what can this church offer me in terms of uh, for, my, for me and my family? Isn't that like the question we ask ourselves? And some of these questions are leg legitimate. Nothing wrong with these questions. We want to be part of a church that helps us in our journey, right? Nothing wrong with that. But again, did you notice who the object of those questions are? It's about us, right? Are we looking for churches that just serve our needs? Or are we wanting to be part of a community where we can serve one another? Yes, we enter into a community because we align with their beliefs and what they, uh, what they value. But what is the part we are willing to do to be part of that community? 
The question, I think, to add to the questions of why we want to be part of a certain church is how is God calling us to serve and to be served in this community? How can we contribute and serve others so that the body of Christ might be built up? This is a very different question to ask than how much you like the pastor's sermons or the programs that the church offers you. One thing that I do want to point out is that this celebrity culture and of uplifting of pastors are not just a mega church problem, but a problem uh, can also be found in small churches. As McKnight and Behringer put it, it's not the size of the church that matters, but rather the size of the pastor's ego. I would add to this to say that it's not only the size of the pastor's ego, but of those who follow such pastors with such egos. So how can we continue to nurture a culture of service? I believe, first of all, it is important for us to recognize and voice that we can all fall into that temptation of celebrity culture. And we all have some of that desire in us for ambition, popularity, and recognition. It is recognizing and voicing that reality and then seeking to turn away from such desires that we can start to embrace that call of Christ to serve. One practical suggestion that McKnight and Behringer mention in the book is the spirituality, spirituality of ordinariness, ordinary, uh, ordinariness, ordinariness. They quote Paula Gooder, who coined this term, that serving others and serving God isn't only in the extravagant, or something extraordinary, but rather in the everyday mundane things of life. So instead of always talking about the amazing ways people have served, I think of people who have served faithfully doing things that are unnoticed. Whether it's changing the light bulbs in the washrooms of our church to that of counting the offering, to that of serving in the nursery, or those who serve their coworkers at their work or care for their clients, helping out a friend or a neighbor, in need. It is in the ordinary, everyday life thing that we can build a culture of service. One of the challenges of service, though, is that it can easily be turned into a way of being proud of your service, right? Like, look at me. Look at how many people I serve. Let me uh, put that on Instagram or put, put it on Facebook, right? I'm serving. You know, come join me in my service. Yeah, obviously, you might be encouraging people to serve, but there is a part of us that we don't feel bad when people like it, right? You know, we, we get a little bit of, like, there's an endorphin uh, that's released every time you see that like in your Facebook or Instagram. So when we post that, we ourselves are feeling a little bit, yeah, you know, people are recognizing how, how, how I serve so well. I remember thinking through my own struggles of being a leader and how we as leaders have a certain image that we need to project. Like, I mean, one of the things that I try to do with my life and is taught in leadership is that you want to lead by example. Like these Pharisees, they didn't lead by example, right? They talked the talk, but then they wouldn't walk the walk. So, you know, we've been taught as, as Christian leaders that you need to lead by example. The problem with leading by example is that you need other people to see your example, right? 
So then, obviously, you're trying to, and you know, I try to be authentic. All of us try to be authentic in how we lead. So I'm not going to just do this service project. or I'm not going to help here just because I'm trying to lead by example. Like, I want to do it just because that's who I want to be. Yet, it's this challenge of leading by example, meaning other people need to see it, to doing it just because you want to. And it was this challenge for me of, like, how, does I, how do I do this in a way where I can do it without feeling as though I'm, I'm like, projecting this image out there? And people really don't know who I am because I'm always having to, like, keep this image of who I want to be, right? And I came across this one book by Andy Crouch who wrote a book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. In it, he, just, he suggests that we all need to have secret acts of service or secret spiritual disciplines, things that we do in secret because this is just who we want to be and we, who we are trying to be. And Andy Crouch shares about his own secret discipline of doing dishes as his spiritual discipline. But then when he wrote about it, and as he used it as an example, he said, well, you know what? Since I use this as an example now, it can't be my spiritual discipline anymore, a secret act of service. He needed to have other secret act of service that he just did just because. Not because he was a writer, not because he's a teacher or leader, just because he was a follower of Jesus, and no one needed to see it. And that, like, hit a light bulb for me. That's what we need. Yeah, we want to lead by example. Yeah, we want to influence others, even in our own little circles of influence. But we all need to have just small little secret acts of service that we do just because that's we, who we are called to be. And Jesus himself says something similar, doesn't he? He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand or know what your right hand is doing. Don't draw attention to yourself and share it on Instagram. It is important for us in our ever public life of the internet to serve and do small, ordinary acts of service in secret. Have a few things that you do just because you want to serve others. Because God knows what you are doing. I love this quote by Richard Foster on service. He says, the flesh whines against service but screams against hidden service. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. Our flesh whines against service. We don't want to really do service, but it screams against hidden service. Interestingly, it's funny. I came across uh, this this morning, uh, and it was given to me, um, and it's an envelope by... Thelma Anderson. Uh, and on it, it says, church, for use on first Sunday each of the month. So, you know, each Sunday of the month, we have uh, communion, and we have blessers who come and bless people um, with stickers for children, but also for people who aren't um, at a place of wanting to take communion. And Thelma had this in her house in her drawer. And for her, it's an act of service that she took seriously enough that she had this in her drawer that she kept to serve people, right, to serve children. And I, th I think this is a beautiful example of 
how we want to be. That was so cool. But I want to end today with a question for you to pray. I want to give you some space to, to reflect on this question. And the question is, what might, be, what might God be calling you to do to nurture that attitude of service in you? Take time to ask God this question. What might you need to do or stop doing in order to nurture the attitude of service in you? I'll have those two questions up on the slide and give you a few minutes to pray and listen to God. Let me pray for us before we do that. Jesus, we thank you that you're a God who came not to be served, but to serve. That you set an example for us of how to be as people. That you humbled yourself. And you call us to, call us to do the same. So we take a moment now to listen to your voice, to hear from you how, how you might be calling us to serve. Jesus, we thank you that you're a God who serves, that you came and washed the feet of the disciples and calls us to do the same. And we thank you that we are called to be part of a community that serves one another, that we're called to not just take, but to give, that we're in this great group of people who, who can be, be your hands and feet to one another. So Father, help us to 
to reflect that uh, in our everyday lives, what, it, what that means. Help us when we get proud and arrogant to, um, that we could catch ourselves in moments like that and to continue to seek to be people of love, humility, and of others. Thank you, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.